It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Stephen Van Zandt. You might know him better as Little Stevie, the guitarist for Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. Or maybe you know him as an actor. He starred in the Netflix show Lillehammer, and he played Silvio on the legendary drama The Sopranos. You're under arrest for violation Title 2C, Chapter 37, Section 2 of the New Jersey Penal Code, promoting gambling. Yeah, go ahead. Last year I made bail so fast, my soup was still warm when I got home. He can sing, he can act, he can play guitar. In other words, this is a guy who's led an interesting life. He recounts all of it in Unrequited Infatuations, a memoir. The months-long tours, recording sessions, international fame, the ups, the downs, the many, many, many headscarves. And of course, his solo music. Here's a song from his band, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, Tucson Train. Stephen Van Zandt, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Good to be with you, my friend. So I've been recording this show mostly remotely the last couple of years for obvious reasons. I get to like look through the video conference into people's offices and houses and places where they're recording. And I just want to start by acknowledging that you're basically recording in the perfect little Stevie Van Zant themed <laughs> environment there. <laughs> Pure, purely by accident, I assure you. <laughs> Surrounded by tapestries and uh, uh, like 1959 jukebox. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess uh, now that you mention it, we, we, usually, we usually are upstairs in the kitchen. But uh, yeah, I, I, we're, I'm very rarely down here. So I'm not sure what's behind me. I'm grateful to have you. Grateful you took the time. Do you remember what the first rock record that you were obsessed with was? Um, I, I, it would have it would have been a, a one of one of several because um, I wore a couple of singles out, which wasn't easy to do in those days. Um, it was either "Sherry" by the Four Seasons, a "Twist and Shout" by the Isley Brothers. Could have been, could have been "Pretty Little Angel Eyes." You know, somewhere in there. <laughs> Were those songs that you heard on the radio? Yeah, this would have been like 61, 62. You know, it would have been, uh, we we had, you know, the a- AM radio back then was great uh, before, you know, long before FM. Yeah, it would. That's, that's the only place you would have heard it, would be on the radio. Um, American Bandstand was on by then. A couple of very nice automobiles will go to two lucky winners that you selected in the American Bandstand Dance Contest. Our special guests of the day are Underground Sunshine. It all happens here right after this word. Listen to the sound of this record. You can figure out why this group is the most talked about group of its day. Mr. Crosby, Mr. Stills, Mr. Nash. Looking at the world through the sunset in 
What did your parents think of that music? Well, uh, that was the thing that was interesting. I, I talk about this in the book. You know, the, the invention of the portable record player really uh, allowed for these things to take place without your parents' knowledge, <laughs> which was uh, essential, <laughs> I would say. And, uh, and, and as, as, as I said, without that portable record player, uh, I'm pretty sure rock and roll would not have happened uh, because you would have had, you know, the old record players, for, for those of us who are older, the record player was built into the, this piece of furniture in the living room which also had the, the one TV and the one radio in the house. You know, and everybody had the same thing for some reason. Uh, and so the living room play, record player uh, had to have your parents' uh, approval. It was right in the middle of the house. You know, I don't think, I don't think rock and roll would have, would have even survived had that been, uh, you know, necessary. Fortunately for us up-and-coming troublemaking teenagers uh the portable record player was invented so we could play them to death in our own rooms did you think immediately when you were young like this is what i want of from my life no no not till not till i mean not till the british invasion um at, at which point it was my life it became my life um you know, uh, the up until then, I was just buying singles and um, disconnected really from it. I, I I didn't even particularly associate the records with the artists that much. You know, I don't know. I was just kind of a s slow, dumb kid, really. But um, I don't know if that's it. I think when you're a kid, I have so many vivid feelings and memories about. Jump for My Love by the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> and it's because it passed through my life and was very important when I was five years old. You know what I mean? You know, yeah, those yeah. The Freaks Come Out at Night by Houdini. This is the same place in my mind. And it wasn't about, I didn't have no idea about, like Houdini had great outfits and everything. I didn't even know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had the freaks come out at night and I had satisfaction. So what can I tell you? You know? <laughs> I mean, they're great records. <laughs> That's the category we're talking about here. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it was a... Very lucky, lucky growing up when we did. Well, the British invasion hit when you were like the perfect age to be transformed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you were like entering adolescence and like ready to be a new kind of person. You know what I mean? Yeah, and feeling like I really didn't fit in with any of the options society was offering, you know? So that was the other factor. You know what I mean? I wasn't comfortable somewhere else. And had to be moved to this new world uh, that the British invasion was revealing, this world of bands, uh, which would really what it was all about. You know, we never we never saw a band until the British invasion. You know, you went to your high school dance; it was instrumental groups. Uh, you didn't see four or five guys playing and singing. You just didn't see it. And and, um, and so that entire culture would be changed. February 9th, 1964. 
I mean, what's, what's wild to me about it as somebody who is a different age from you is it's hard for me to wrap my head around how fast the culture around rock music changed during a time when you were like a teenager. You know what I mean? Like you go from pre-British invasion through the British invasion. You, you know, it's hard for me to understand <laughs> that the Beatles went from uh, dorks doing uh, corny R&B covers to like the like most important pop musicians of their generation to uh, like the most progressive pop musicians of their generation in like three years or something. <laughs> um, well, time, time, you know, and then like yeah. hippies changed the world and then we're done 18 months later. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? No, it was like that. It was, it, time was very, very different in the sixties. And you're absolutely right about that. Uh, it's hard to uh, explain. We had a major trend that happened every year of the 60s. British Invasion, 64, folk rock, 65, you know, uh, blues rock, 66, psychedelic, 67, country rock, 68, southern rock, 69, and then the, the, the great fragmentation in the 70s. Um, but it was just like um, huge, huge changes and something remarkable happening every month or two. You know, here comes, you know, one band after the other, incredible, legendary bands. And then, you know, by the way, here's this kid, Jimi Hendrix, and here's this, you know, Procol Harum, and here's, uh, you know, uh, you know, Jefferson Airplane and the Doors and Stones and the Who and the Kinks and the Hollies, you know, and, and, and Dusty Springfield and, and Curtis Mayfield and, you know, and just Motown alone. Uh, you know, ridiculous roster of geniuses, you know, <laughs> Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and The Temptations, Four Tops, you know, uh, one after the other, you know, Martin Vandellas, and we just took it for granted that, it, that, that, that this extraordinary renaissance was never going to end, and of course it couldn't, it couldn't last, and it didn't, and like I said, by 69, 70, uh, the major trends, genre trends that would take over the entire culture uh, and, and made us very much a monoculture for, for those years, uh, fragmented into from singer-songwriters over here to heavy metal over there and everything in between starting in 1970 or so. And we would never be, be that monoculture again. But, but huge changes were taking place all, very quickly, very quickly. We'll have even more with Stephen Van Zant soon. We haven't talked nearly enough about playing in a band with Bruce Springsteen, which is something he's done a, a fair bit of in his career, so we'll get into that after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Stephen Van Zant. For decades, he has played guitar in Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He also had starring roles on shows like The Sopranos and Lillehammer. He has a new memoir out called Unrequited Infatuations. Let's get back into our conversation. I was trying to think of like, what are the things that strike me as distinctive about what it is that you do? Like, what are the things that tie together the Asbury Jukes and uh, the work you've done with Bruce Springsteen and your own stuff and uh, the records that you've produced and so on and so forth, right? One of them is that thing that you talked about, about wanting to be in a band. And it's not just the form of the band, but like the vibe of bandness. Like a lot of your work is basically about being buddies, (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> like absolutely right. <laughs> communicating the spirit of buddiness. Yes. The other is that, like, right as you were becoming a professional musician around 1970, you were in like a rock world that was not just fracturing into lots of kinds of rock music, although it was. You know, there was heavy rock was getting heavy, and there was all other kinds of things happening. But also, like, rock was transitioning out of being dance party music and you you have always been committed to getting a party started you know what i mean in a way that you can't say about led zeppelin or whatever led zeppelin great band i'm not putting down led zeppelin i don't think led zeppelin needs me defending it but um but like you've like all of your work has always involved a certain amount of like let's all get down like let's have a party well, m- most of it, yeah. I, I think um, one way or the other, I um, am motivated to motivate you. It may be dancing. It may be voting. I think you're right. Most of it has some motivating factor, let's put it that way, which comes out of the origin of us being a dance band in the first place, which most of the great bands were from the 60s and early 70s. Um, we kind of brought that back with Southside Johnny and the Adbury Juice because by, by 73, 74, that trend had long ended. People had stopped dancing to rock and roll by, by 60, 68, 69. But we kind of brought that back because in the bar world, the bar band world, it never stopped. You know, the bar band world, you had to get people dancing. People still danced in bars. That's what the bar owners wanted because you dance, you get thirsty, and you drink more, basically. Uh, so that was a, a prerequisite, a requirement in the, in the bar world which was kind of existing in its own little, you know, parallel universe. And, and, and that's where we really made our bones. We made our bones in that, in that 74, 75 years in, in the Stone Pony in Asbury Park as a dance band, just like the Beatles were a dance band in Hamburg and the Stones, uh, you know, in Richmond and the Who and the Kinks and the Animals. All of those groups were dance bands in the beginning. And, and, and why does that matter? Well, 
now you transition into a concert band, but you still have that extra energy that you needed to pull people out of their chairs and make them dance. You know, that is an aggressive, uh, you know, part of your DNA. You never lose that. So that makes, that's why we, we and, and, and the ones I mentioned are some of the most exciting bands in the world because, because you still have that motivation to pull you out of the chair and make you dance, you know, or at least get your blood moving and with the hope that, you know, if your blood is moving, it'll get to your brain and make you think better, you know. You had known Bruce Springsteen since you were a kid, a teenager, um, but you weren't in the first band uh, that he played with after he got his record deal. Uh, you you had sort of been, that idea had kind of been floated and rejected uh, at the very beginning. When the E Street Band was formed, did the bunch of you like have a conversation or did Springsteen tell you like, this is why I want to do this thing this way, or this is why we want to do this thing this way? No, I don't think there was much verbal uh, discussion about what we were doing. Um, you know, my dog here. My dog's getting, <laughs> getting antsy. A really excellent dog delivery just happened for our listeners at home. <laughs> <laughs> um... No, there wasn't. There wasn't that sort of intellectual, uh, you know, strategizing going on. Um, no, it was all very, very instinctive. But I mean, you must have known something that you wanted because, in like in the intervening time, you had even quit the business for a little while. You know, it's not like Springsteen was making huge hits. He was still trying to figure out how to put up, put over what he was doing. And like, so everybody had had this time to kind of marinate on it. And it seems like there was a lot of mission involved. You know what I mean? Subconsciously, perhaps, you know, uh, instinctively, but not, not literally. We started to feel, as one could easily do today, like things were slipping away. Like important things were slipping away. That's what it felt like in the early 70s. Yes, everybody was uh, obsessed with being modern and new. And you could tell, you started to feel, oh, the Renaissance was finite. <laughs> it's not going to continue. Uh, it feels different now uh, because of fragmentation and because of the hybrids. We're not going to see that complete originality and ever again. And there was something about going to the source of that complete originality, as close as you can get to it, and taking your identity from that, that would make you stronger. You know? That's what we felt then, and I feel it now. You know? I mean, my stuff, it's never been timely, which makes it timeless. <laughs> and uh, and so you get, you get, you listen to it and it, it it doesn't fit in anywhere, but uh, but there's an in, intrinsic quality to it uh, that I would put up against anything, ever, because I made a point of that. 
you know, the greatness part of what we do is something that you make a decision about. And um, I'm chasing greatness all the time. I, I, I seek it out wherever I can. I support it when I find it. And I try and achieve it. Always. That's all I care about. And, and so that has its own uh, currency. Uh, it, it may not be monetary, but it has a certain currency. Uh, it's why people, you know, always respect my work uh, you know they may you know they may not buy it <laughs> in, in big quantities but i've always had that respect and even live same thing live uh and it's something that it's a it's a it's a fealty you know you know it's a certain uh respect and honor and loyalty to where we come from and um for some reason that's our thing you know and it's 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 all of our it's our jersey kind of thing, man, you know, and I've continued it on the radio uh, show. You know, you hear it, you hear it in my, in my radio network. Uh, the stuff we play is the best music ever made, in my opinion, and that includes a thousand new bands doing it today. I was reading you describe uh, a trip you took to Italy when you had some hit records in Italy, and these were your hit records. And you were like describing being recognized on the street and which was, you know, for your albums that had your name on them and feeling kind of odd about that. And like, maybe this is not what I wanted from my life. And I wonder if you thought that's what you wanted. Like, were you, you know, the consummate second in command um, in the E Street Band and... Uh, in the Jukes and so on and so forth, because that's where you wanted to be, uh, or did yeah. you think you wanted to be somewhere else? Yeah, no, I, I never wanted to be in front. I never had that desire. Uh, it happened kind of by accident and by me getting into politics, which I felt, you know, this is not really a banned thing. I'm kind of, I'm kind of taking a stand here on very controversial politics, uh, you know, political situations. It's not really something you can you can tell a band to go down with the ship, you know. It, it, it gets you know I, my life threatened and and et cetera et cetera. So you know you kind of um, you know the solo thing became something I just felt I had to do at the time, but it was never something I wanted to do, never. And I and I realized that when I had those I had happened to have those two hits on that one album. You know, we're doing our usual thing, walking down the street, and suddenly there's hundreds of kids attacking me, <laughs> you know? And that's you're supposed to like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're supposed to say, oh, you know, I'm a success. This is what I wanted. And at that moment, I said, I don't like it. I don't like this, uh, okay? If this is what being a superstar is, I don't, I don't like it. Uh, I want to create greatness. I want to create great records and do great TV shows and whatever I'm going to do. But I, I don't need to be the star. You know, I, I know that's, you know, through the years you learn that you kind of have to be. You know, if, if you really want to, if if you really want to have some enough power to do what you need to do, uh, a little bit of celebrity doesn't hurt. You know, but uh, but if it was up to me, I I would just be the writer producer. I'm just fine with that. You know what I mean? I I don't need to be the performer. 
I don't need to be a celebrity. I, I really, you know, I do not want to be mobbed by a bunch of kids when I'm trying to go have a cup of coffee. I mean, it's funny because you are both, like, you couldn't be, you're obviously, like, the most consummate sideman or second in command like there's no greater symbol in american popular music with all due respect to jerome from the time like there's <laughs> there's no there's no greater support piece than you in a band um but also like in so doing you are also almost absurdly distinctive in doing that right like you have <laughs> like you're i can see you right now you are dressed as Stevie Van Zant, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's no mistaking. <laughs> so it's not like, uh, so so you're also the furthest thing from anonymous. You know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah. And it's kind yeah. of an interesting in between place to be. Even in the Jukes, you know, like, sure, you're not the lead singer, but you're right there. You know what I mean? Like, you're also you're not you're not hiding in the wings. No, you know, I know what you mean. And that just goes along. I guess this just goes with the territory of, of any kind of performance. You know, you know, as soon as you step onto that stage, you're going to have some of that, you know. And, and, and yeah, and you want some of that. You, you do. You know, you, you want to, um, you want people to like you and, and like what you do and uh, appreciate what you do, you know. Again, uh, it has its limits, you know, <laughs> for me. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I just rather, would rather not be the guy in the spotlight all the time. I just don't want to live that way. I want to occasionally be able to observe and not be observed, you know. So uh, you got to find your way, find your way to do that. I mean, that's one good thing about living in New York City. You can hide in plain sight you know pretty much uh but but i i just i i just i know what you mean um but that's you know some of that's okay i mean you know you're gonna you're gonna get some respect because you do good work and uh and that's you know you want that you, you do want that we'll wrap up with steven van zant after a quick break stay with us it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Jared Hill. We are the hosts of Fanti, the show where we have complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the things that we really, really love sometimes, but also have some problematic feelings about. Yes, we get into it all. You want to know our thoughts about Nicki Minaj and all her foolishness? We got you. You want to know our thoughts about gentrification and perhaps some positive? question mark Uh aspects of gentrification we get into that too every single thursday you can check us out at maximumfun.org listen you know you want it honey so come on and get it (laughs) period i'm jesse thorne you're listening to bullseye i'm talking with musician and actor steven van zandt his new book is called unrequited infatuations a memoir Let's get back into our conversation. Did writing the book change the way that you thought about your life? I mean, you are in a way forced to reflect. The one thing I must say that I feel a little bit better about, uh, all my life I thought, well, 
could I have stayed in the E Street Band and still done what I did? You know, still done the seven solo albums and the Sun City Project and Sopranos and Lilyhammer and you know. Uh, and and in in my fantasies, I I always thought, yeah, I could have found a way to do that. But when you go back and live it, you realize that's just ridiculous. Uh, there's no way uh, that could have happened. You know, uh, you know, you couldn't go to uh, Bruce uh, at the peak of Born uh, in the USA uh, or whatever, and said, uh, you know, by the way, Bruce, you know, would you mind? I'm going to take six months here and see if I can become an actor. Uh, you, you know, uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, so um, I think I'm more at peace with the decision I made at the time, which very much seemed like the end of my life. And I think that's how the book can be useful for some people because um, sometimes when you think your life is over, and I really did. You know, I wasn't changing jobs when I left the E Street Band. I, I, I was ending my life. Uh, there was no plan B after that. And, um, you know, everybody's going to hit that wall, I think, in their, in their, in their lives. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be, you know, in a, depressed. You're gonna your job is not gonna work out. Some, something's gonna happen. It's you feel like um, you're done, and if you can find a way to hang in there and just find some way to survive and move forward without being decimated by drugs or alcohol or suicide, all of which I considered, if you can find a way to um, get past that and move forward. Destiny will surprise you. Everything I've done in my life, pretty much, that has value, happened after I thought my life was over. And I think that can be instructive, uh, you know? I, I, hopefully, that can be inspirational to somebody who thinks their life is over. And, and look, look what he did after his life was over. He did everything, <laughs> you know, every, virtually everything that matters after it was over. So I think destiny can surprise you if you can, if you can find a way to, you know, just keep moving forward somehow. And I mean, you got to join back up. You get to be in the E Street Band as long as you want now. <laughs> Yeah, you guys, will be, you guys will be 95 years old doing three and a half hour concerts. Yeah, we're we'll 95 waiting for the COVID thing to end. That's fair. <laughs> waiting for the new variant to go away. <laughs> yeah. So there's one other thing that I want to ask you that's pretty stupid, which is somebody suggested this to me and I was like, man, I really want to know the answer to that. Uh, it is so... You are probably, the most famous image of you on stage is probably sharing a microphone with your friend, Bruce Springsteen. The two of you yelling into the same microphone with your scarf flowing behind you, you know, and his gorgeous puss right up against yours. Um, when you guys are doing that, are you spitting on each other? <laughs> is that a hazard of doing that? <laughs> this is what keeps you up at night? 
I don't know. Somebody said, are they spitting on each other when they do that? And I'm like, I, I kind of want to know whether they're spitting. It seems like they probably would be. Let's see. Let's see. We're losing 3,000 people a day to COVID. Russia's <laughs> attacking the Ukraine. China's about to take over Taiwan. You know, we're about to lose our democracy in America. And that's what you're worried about? That's what you're thinking about? You know about? what? One time, I interviewed, one time I interviewed Larry King, and I asked him about his interviewing technique. I learned way more than I expected from interviewing Larry King. And the question that he said that he gave as an example of a question he was really proud of was asking a pilot when the plane took off if he knew it was going to land. And sometimes a dumb question is a good question. As soon as someone suggested to me, are they spitting on each other? I had to know the answer. The answer is no. Okay. If you must know, absolutely not. Well, Stevie Van Zandt, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Hey, my pleasure, my friend. Stephen Van Zandt, his new book is called Unrequited Infatuations, a memoir. Before we end things, let's go out on a tune from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, one on which little Stevie played. We let Stacy Molsky, Maximum Fun's very own child of New Jersey, pick the tune. This is Rosalita, little Stephen guitar and backup vocals. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where my eight-year-old Oscar took my power drill and disassembled the playhouse that was in the backyard. It's now a pile of sticks, and he also made a few swords out of it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in all those places. Follow us. We'll share our interviews with you. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.